Ship Platypus Says, episode 28. A wave of millennial sex panic has overtaken the culture industry. In this episode of Shit Platypus Says, episode 28, my co-host Sophia Freeman and I discuss the film Cuties, a French film that has recently stirred up controversy as it was released in the United States, where liberals and conservatives have asked to ban the film due to the sexualization of young girls. We discussed responses by both Jacobin and Spiked Online. We follow this with a segment on Roman Polanski's award-winning film Jacuzzi, or An Officer and a Spy, and the recent walkout at the French Film Academy Awards in protest of the filmmaker. Marco Torres and David Faze join Sophia and I to discuss what the film has to tell us about the present. A throwback to the history of the left for our listeners back in the original case in the 1970s when Polanski was accused of statutory rape, the left was divided on the case. The Spartacus League, a Trotskyist organization founded in the new left, defended Polanski on the basis the government should not be allowed in the bedroom. Their defense, as well as the clarification of the issue for the Marxist left, can be found in articles in their newspaper, The Workers' Vanguard. We'll link that in the episode description. Paul Kautsky, known as the Pope of Marxism, was a leading figure of the Second International and the Mass Socialist Parties of the 19th century. He became an incredibly controversial figure in Marxism after 1914, largely as a result of his opposition to the 1917 revolution. In recent years, he has resurfaced on the left as an important intellectual, though his legacy remains in dispute. What can we learn from Karl Kautsky's Marxism today? These are the questions that Platypus asked at the recent Kautsky panel. In the last segment of the podcast, my co-host Sophia Freeman sits down with Jack Conrad from the Communist Party of Great Britain. They discuss some of the statements made on the Kautsky in the 21st century panel linked in the episode description. They talk about Kautsky's opposition to the 1917 Russian Revolution, his role in the crisis of Second International Marxism, and what the CPGB is up to these days. This is the Back to School episode. We took a break. Now we're back. It's back to learning, no matter where you are. Enjoy. Netflix is under growing fire after its release of the award-winning French film, Cuties. The movie, which debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in January, follows 11-year-old Ami, who lives in Paris and rebels against her religious family to join a group of dancers. Last month, the streaming giant apologized after it sparked outrage on social media. After its official U.S. premiere on the streaming service last week, the film is facing growing backlash. Some people are even canceling their subscriptions, and the hashtag cancel Netflix is trending. So this has been this, this film that everyone is going crazy about. You have seen it. I know you've seen it. Yeah. 
<laughs> Let's not pretend. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. I saw cancel Netflix uh, trending as a hashtag. And I was like, what? What's going on now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, apparently people are so upset about cuties that they want the uh, Department of Justice to get involved. Yeah. To ban the film. For, for those who have not had a chance to see the film or for some reason haven't seen any, any of the outrage, the film is about, I think they're 11-year-old girls and the actresses, I think, are 11 as well. Um, and they form a dance crew and they they copy um, provocative dances that they see on, on YouTube. Yeah, so think like 11-year-old girls performing like the Cardi B's WAP, you know, Mm-hmm. video or something the the deeper story is um the protagonist her mother is islamic and she's watching um her mother's life unfold and is being brought into this kind of very traditional religious world and she finds it um stifling and her mother also is, has been well her um the protagonist amy her father has remarried another woman and so the mother is going to be a second wife Right, has taken an additional wife, yes. father. Yeah. yeah, 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 and yeah, and she feels sort of trapped and bewildered by this this, this kind of extreme suffering that her mom is going through mm-hmm. as a result of her father choosing the second wife, and but she can see that her mom um, is like repressing her own sadness mm. because she feels like it's her duty to be a good wife. Yeah, and so Amy's escape is to go and dance with these girls and to kind of experience herself in this um, free, sort of carefree world um, where she's not stifled by her mom's um, traditional feminine. Yeah, there's one minute in the film where I think her mother, some kind of religious guy, visits the house and he says to Amy's mother that she, if she's finding the situation too much, she has permission to leave, something like this. But we don't see her act on, on this in the film either yeah yeah so i think that basically there have been calls for censorship that people are getting behind and there's this accusation that it's essentially child pornography we should say that you know there's not any sex scenes in fact in the movie um yeah there's no even like like kissing i guess you know there's no uh yeah no there, there there's nothing i mean the 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 most explicit thing that you see are close-ups of midriffs or you know like there's 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 one scene where she takes a picture of what i think is her vagina it's unclear whether or not she had any underwear on because we don't see it so she like takes a snap of her underpants and then posts it online Mm -hmm. but we don't get to see any of that we just sort of so it's very strange, like, what the hula blue is about, like, all this controversy. Mm-hmm. Given that also, I mean, I think that the movie is also quite, it's ambivalent about what all of this sort of sexuality, like, the the freedom that she experiences from dancing in this way. She's kind of like, is it freedom, though? You know, she's like, she's she's raised, she's kind of raising a critique as well that these young women don't know what they're doing, that they experience it as a kind of liberation, but that in fact it may not be because they, you can tell that her friends, they really care about what the comments are underneath the photos. They go through ups and downs in their friendship based on how many likes they got on a photo or whether or not they thought it was 
um, it would it would make them popular or not. And she's ultimately our, our our protagonist is ostracized from her dance crew because she posts this picture of her of, of of her underpants or whatever, and then like they think that that's crossed a line because people are calling them sluts, and then they're like, yeah, you're out of our team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These girls have kind of the prepubescent girls in the film have they kind of fulfill our society's idea of the ideal woman this like shapeless um very skinny uh hairless uh yeah. boyish figure yeah. um and they inhabit that and then and then when adults see that dancing around in hot pants or whatever they can't handle it people are outraged when when seeing actual tweens uh gyrating on the screen yeah I mean, there's certainly an investment in keeping a part of childhood completely um, free of sexuality, right? And when that line starts to blur or where there are gray areas, then the taboo flares up mm-hmm. that one should protect this this innocence. Mm-hmm. I think in, in Adorno's Sexual Taboos in the Law Today, he talks about this investment that society has in preserving the purity of childhood and how that exposes the wretchedness of society that you know you have to have this the sacred time where you know before is lost to to the hellish the hellish society you have to preserve this 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 precious time you know in order to cope with um, because at least you can protect the child right like no matter how horrible society is you're you're doing a service by preserving this innocent, mm-hmm. innocent time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I read recently on, um, I think it was the Times Literary Supplement, that Lolita's uh, publisher, Dan Franklin, mm-hmm. said that he wouldn't be able to publish Nabokov's Lolita today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, notably had this obsession with the 12-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Um, because he said, quote, I wouldn't publish Lolita. What's different today is Me Too and social media. You can organize outrage at the drop of a hat. If Lolita was offered to me today, I'd never be able to get it past the acquisition team. A committee of 30-year-olds who'd say, if you publish this book, we will all resign. And yeah, so it's like my generation, the millennials Mm -hmm. who are, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, fostering the sex panic. The the right, i.e., like Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingraham, Ted Cruz, Blair White, who's um, a trans alt right figure, those people have been like bearers of freedom of speech against the the left snowflakes or whatever. They've come out in hives over this over this film, calling for it to be mm-hmm. shut down. A lot of them admit yeah. they haven't seen it, um, which is a shame because it's a shame that people can't see something for themselves and then reflect upon their experience. But you know. Um, yeah, and then yeah. I, in terms of the left's response, there was an article by Brendan O'Neill in in um, Spiked magazine. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll mm-hmm. post it in the description, and and he kind of picks up on. He's kind of supportive of the film, um, but then he disarms the um, protagonist, the girls in the film, the lead characters, as being kind of like knowing nothing about sex, um, and they're just kind of like little girls, and the film portrays them as. Um, innocent confused children yeah yeah and it's and it's only because because of that 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 the film's acceptable because in the end it falls morally on the right side yeah 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 i i I understand what you're saying because like what he likes about the film is that you know these girls don't really know what they're doing they're like they're naive and they're kind of playing pretend adults you know 
And so it shows how this parody of adulthood, as he puts it, is just something that they act out, but that really they, they're just confused. And that it's, um, as he put it, it's a touching reminder of the immaturity of the girls. It just disarms the situation. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes like a moral story. I don't know, as if that as if that's our task to to kind of serve one with a moral injunction. Maybe people can't deal with something more complicated. You know, when I was I was a precocious young woman and when I was growing up, imitation, like mimicry of adult sexuality is kinda of how you begin to learn what you are actually into, right? Like it's through like mimicry um, and play yeah. that you start to learn what you might like. I have to say, yeah, my my cultural tastes have changed, but as a as a kid I was I loved uh, Christina Aguilera in the Moulin Rouge video, who I dressed up as. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Like seriously with all the makeup and everything. And the crimp the crimped nice. hair. I don't know if it was nice, but um <laughs> and I and you know the the dirty video where she's in like chaps, I remember that. Oh yeah. And then all the oh, Britney yeah. Spears videos, the Destiny's Child, but you know. Yeah. Free Britney. Free Britney. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, no, I was I was like a rotten little kid that would watch the late night shows on HBO. I would watch Real Sex and um, taxi cab confessions and I'd be like what is this crazy world but I think you know like yeah I didn't know I didn't know what I was watching but I also knew that there was something titillating exciting and something taboo about some of the things that I was watching and and it made me want to know more and I think that it's true to say that children don't necessarily know like what they're watching or what they're play acting but I think it's um, kind of false to say that what that means is that they're just like innocent kids that don't know better because that is a form of learning like mimicry for children is a form of learning and sometimes you you have to kind of own the experience Mm. by imitating it and then it becomes yours in a new Mm -hmm, way mm -hmm. so um i don't think that yeah so i I agree i think that it's a bit of it's a bit of dismissing of childhood sexuality Mm -hmm. the the jacobin um there's a there's a jacobin review of cuties and it is more like straight up liberal Mm -hmm. it is just like a defense of the film on the basis that you know children of course have sexuality and that ignoring this just reveals like the biases of the adults Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that you know what the film is focusing on is this transitional period of maturity um that is like quite confusing can be confusing and overwhelming for a young woman and that's the the sort of tenderness in the mm-hmm. film, right? It's like she's very lost. Mm-hmm. Like our protagonist mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. is very lost. Yeah, and um, yeah, she goes through these spouts of violence. Also, she's like mean to some like, of the quite mean. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she throws one one girl in the river. <laughs> so there's all there's all sorts of um, there's a lot of uh, acting out because she doesn't understand. She doesn't know like what her place is yet, and she's mm-hmm. trying to figure mm-hmm. it out. And sexuality is a part of that larger phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? It's not everything, but it's like a key component of learning how to be in the world and feeling feeling yourself in the world in mm-hmm. a way that's not restricted to your parents. And who, yeah, who, who you want to be become in the world, I guess. Amy, the protagonist, changes herself. Yeah. Although it becomes like this destructive creation, she transforms herself. Yeah. Yeah. So this is Eileen Jones writing in Jaffa magazine we'll include this in the description as well 
The, yeah, the film is, is ambivalent. Like, I think, you know, the ending is strange, I thought. Spoiler alert. Because yeah. she's like, I mean, we're not really giving anything away. It's not like some critical development. But she just ends with this scene of her, of, of Amy jumping rope playing innocent games with the street kids and as some traditional Victorian toys. Yeah, yeah. It, it felt very like Spike Lee Crooklyn 1970s vibes. You know, the kids in the mm-hmm. streets like playing with chalk and jump rope. Well, she comes out with her natural hair undone in yeah. slightly more conservative looking clothes. Yeah. And then she is like smiling, um, playing with a skipping rope. And as the camera then pans up and she follows... It was my least favorite bit in the film. She she follows the camera as it's kind of going upwards in the sky, but um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, was like, weird. Ah. It, was, it was weird. It was like innocence, like rising will surpass all or something, and it didn't really embrace that part of the protagonist that was curious about her own sexuality and desire. It sort of it sort of puts it aside at the end of the film and says like, well, she's acting out because you know there's trouble at home and. And mm-hmm. yeah, the the mm-hmm. director seemed to emphasize that there were these two false options for femininity, this kind of restrictive Muslim household traditional idea of femininity, and then the hypersexualized, mm-hmm. you know, MTV, well, it's not MTV, culture, no one watches MTV anymore. Industry. The yeah. culture industry, yeah, like, like sexualized uh, teens, mm-hmm. and that these two are like both empty, they're both hollow. Mm-hmm. I guess you have there like the the puritanism and the libertinism that um, Adorno speaks about in Sexual Taboos and the Law today. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, it's not wrong to say that you know these things are sort of shells of of um, social experience. Yeah, social experience exactly. Yeah, and that there's something else. But the resolution of a return to innocence, mm. return to a kind of puritan 19th century childhood or something i don't know it, it, it felt funny odd. yeah it seemed like a, a a non-resolution you know it reminded me about it trotsky's literature and revolution when he talks about how the artwork when the artwork seeks to resolve the contradiction you know it lies mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah like at the end felt like a lie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah just thinking about adorno's sexual taboos in the law today um i guess he Importantly, he was writing this in the 60s when society appears to have transcended all sexual taboos. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Adorno is kind of saying that it's like this is not the case. The taboos haven't fallen away. Only a, a new, deeper form of oppression has been reached um, with all of its destructive potential, he says. And so, um, yeah, I, you should, our listeners, you should read this essay. Maybe yeah. it's never, never been, in light of cuties, um, yeah. it's most definitely relevant. Um, I realize that we've been saying this actually since episode four, by the way, it gets oh. brought up. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's followed us in the podcast. Yeah. Should, should take a read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So long as sexuality is bridled, it is tolerated, says Adorno. <laughs> Amen. Amen. 
several actresses have walked out of France's biggest film awards ceremony after Roman Polanski won Best Director. Polanski was convicted in the US of the statutory rape of a 13-year-old in 1977, but fled the country. The César Awards, France's equivalent to the Oscars, have been murdered in controversy after Polanski's film An Officer and a Spy received 12 nominations. The 86-year-old had been a controversial nominee. He hadn't shown up at the ceremony, fearing for his safety. And the protest outside before and during the ceremony left little doubt as to why. Speaking before the event, the French culture minister voiced his concerns about whether Mr Polanski should win. Maybe he will win it, but then in my opinion that would be a bad message with regard to the necessary awareness that we should all have on the fight against sexual and sexist violence. Nomination of this film, An Officer and a Spy, led to the entire board resigning earlier this month. This is very much an international chat right now. Uh, yeah, it's very much an international chat. So we have Marco is in Chicago, Marco Torres. I was on the podcast before talking about uh, Lopez Obrador and also about uh, Hugo Chavez. And David Faze, where are you at? Hey guys, uh, I'm currently in upstate New York and I'm the editor-in-chief of the Podipus Review. Boop, boop. So I'm excited to be back. Yeah, you were on the episode on sexuality. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, mm-hmm. which is a really good episode that everyone should listen to. Uh, and Sophia, my co-host. Hi, Sophia. Hello. We are going to do a segment on the canceled artists. I guess we did cover John Raffman in last episode, episode 27. And now we're going to talk about Roman Polanski, a mm-hmm. uh, Polish director who back in February won Best Director at the Caesars in France for his film Jacuz, An Officer and a Spy. So we all watched the film and it was actually at uh, John Raffman's recommendation. Mm -hmm. So there is a connection uh, with the last episode. They also kind of look like each other. Have you, did you notice that? I was seeing some like interviews with with, uh, (laughs) Roman Polanski and like, they got like a, like a, like a, like a thing going on, like a kind of, uh, I don't know. They kind of look, I don't know. It reminded me of him for some reason. I don't know. Because they're both Jewish, maybe? <laughs> but like in a Polish way. I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some kind of Polish <laughs> background. I don't know. I don't know. The, the cancellation for Polanski dates back to the 70s, right? The, um, yeah. the moral outrage. Yeah. So he hooked up with a 13-year-old. Polanski, not John Raffman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not not John Rathman. Um, so yeah, Polanski. I didn't know anything about this girl uh, other than she was 13. Apparently she was sexually active. She used to hang around movie stars and used to uh, experiment with quaaludes. I think she, she wanted to be an actress. Yeah, apparently she wanted yeah. to drop the charges. Yeah. Yeah. As far as how it's affected me, um, what he did did not affect me greatly. What happened with the court and the media traumatized my whole family, changed all our lives. I mean, I was a teenager. I was sexually active. I was not as traumatized by that, uh, you know, by the sex as everyone would like me to be. Um, but that's just who I am. There's two. There's two factors to bear in mind. One is that her mother is the one who pressed the charges. And she did so on the advice of uh, her sister, 
the girl's sister, who she confided in about the event, not expecting there to be repercussions, because she had been with older people before, and she had been experimenting with sex and drugs before, so it wasn't necessarily anything new for her. She was precocious. Um, <laughs> the second factor to bear in mind is that the police found uh, cocaine mm. in her room, and so that she might have felt a pressure from them to to go through with it and, and kind of return for them not pushing those like a drug charge on her here's the thing i i realize now that it's impossible to talk about the work the movie without talking about this man's sexual history but he did make a fucking movie so and the movie seems to have um been recognized as somehow an excellent film so i thought that we would talk about the film and see if we could understand why it was made it was made now. Like, why is it that Polanski's making a film about the Dreyfus affair in uh, 2020? Like, I guess to to their, their credit, I mean, a lot of the reviews that I've read about the film or even the jury at this film award have, to their credit, like, they've, they've not, they're not morally assessing the film in terms of um, being outraged by um, Polanski's sexual relations. Mm-hmm. So the film is a period piece. It's a historical film, and it covers the Dreyfus Affair, which is a controversial moment in, in, in French political history. Au nom du peuple français, le premier conseil de guerre du gouvernement militaire de Paris a reconnu le nommé Dreyfus Alfred coupable. In 1894, a Jewish staff officer in the French army was convicted of spying. To cries of down with Judas from a large Parisian crowd, he was publicly stripped of his badges of rank before being deported to Devil's Island. This display of anti-Semitism was ugly enough, and years later, after heinous punishment, it transpired that the officer was innocent. This was the Dreyfus affair, and it tore France apart. The scandal of Alfred Dreyfus' treatment set Republicans against Catholics and led to the prosecution of the novelist Emile Zola. It threatened the foundations of the French Republic itself provoked the separation of church and state, and established the model of the French intellectual. Half a century later, during the Nazi occupation, the affair was still influencing France. There was, there was some kind of reckoning, in fact, and he was allowed to come back into his post. Uh, so the film follows this sort of ups and downs of, of this witch hunt. Well, the, the film the film follows uh, another officer that is put in the place of the original accusing officer. And the beginning, he is uh, sort of open about being uh, anti-Semite that is happy about the original result. Him having been... Uh, he's convicted of treason. Uh, he's convicted yeah. of treason, but there's like a... He's degraded. They break his sword. It's yeah. that's like how the, 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 uh, the movie starts. And... Um, and the story is is of uh, this guy that like agrees with that whole thing, and when he enters the French intelligence community or whatever, he uh, finds that the charges were based on fabricated evidence, and that uh, there was another uh, officer or another you know uh, a military guy that had been in communication with the Germans. Mm-hmm. Um, it follows uh, it doesn't follow either Dreyfus or Emile Sola or something like that, but this this character who was complicit at, like, but sort of from a distance, it seems. And then when he gets into it, he uh, he has, like, a revelation of what the truth is and, and gets a sense that he must 
you know, reveal it and put it out there and, and grows his character. Like that's kinda like what I really liked about the movie was was the the sort of the the development and the sort of the, the growth and the like the increasing like conviction of the the righteousness of this of, of his cause that this guy has and he's willing to put his whole career on the line to 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 challenge this uh, big anti-Semitic success uh, in public success that was this uh, conviction of Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Well, he says he um, follows his conscience, right? That he that he starts right. to uncover um, contrary evidence um, to the conviction of mm-hmm. this guy, and he sees it through. Just to put some names on it, it's Colonel Picard. He's the he becomes the head of the information division. So he's the guy that ends up finding out that there was a forgery and that uh, mm-hmm. Dreyfus was wrongly accused. And it's Picard that, that speaks up. Whereas it's pretty clear that he didn't, he didn't really have to, right? Like that's, I guess that's the, the part of his moral conviction that he could have stayed silent and he could have remained in his post in charge of this division um, without getting himself into all this mess. Because as the film unfolds, whenever he points the finger somebody at the top says, listen, shut up about this, right? It's not in your interest to to speak up about this. Just move on, uh, move along. And he... And yet he persists. And he persists. And then he goes <laughs> to the, the liberal press, which includes um, Emil Sola. And Sola writes this this column, this this jacuzzi, accusing the military of, yeah, of forging these documents and accusing an innocent man. He names all the names of the people who made up the, the, uh, the charges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I rewatched Chinatown, and there's this corrupt system, and the you know Jack Nicholson's character wants to get to like the bottom of it, and you know he's just like continues to go down the hole, and he's like uncovering like more conspiratorial shit over more conspiratorial shit, and he's getting himself into more and more trouble as he's finding out that it goes all the way to the top. You know, and that's just how corrupt Chinatown is. And you just have to kind of accept it because that's the, how does he put it? Like, those are the waters in which you swim when you're working in Chinatown. So you just have to accept that the system is is corrupt. And he's like, I'm not going to accept, like, I'm going to find out. And then he, as a result of like fighting and fighting and fighting, he actually loses his his romantic interest. Like the the woman, the, the lead um, like she, she's, she's killed at the end of the movie and he's, you know, fully resigns. He's just like, okay, like I, I can't do anything. Right. Like I've lost, I've lost my lover. Right. Cause forget it, bro. It's Chinatown. That's right. Forget it. It's Chinatown. But in Jacuzzi, there's redemption. Right. Um, and you know, and, and Dreyfus is pardoned by the president of the Republic and he, he gets his post back and and in fact Picard uh, becomes a rather important part of the state. There's a turning of a new leaf and these these characters are heroes. So maybe maybe Polanski should be seeing as um as in that she didn't want she didn't want to press charges and for this to to go through the courts in in the way that it did. Um that it in a, I guess in a way it is that she's saying she's she's not a she doesn't want to be a victim um and so uh maybe Polanski should be pardoned I don't know sorry that's <laughs> well, fundamental I think the anti-semitism I think the anti-semitism angle is is, is important mm-hmm. here I mean 
like Ron Plansky was he he he's a victim of the Holocaust. He was in the Krakow ghetto. Like his mom was taken away from him in you know the early forties to 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 uh... a concentration camp. Auschwitz. Auschwitz. Yeah. You know, like I I feel like that is a whole other sort of uh, side that he's you know coming coming at this like his life story is 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 moving from one place to the other in a state of persecution and kind of like doing great wherever he lands mm. uh and that like he's got that kind of story going on you know from poland to to france and from france to the united states and from the united states back to france and sort of tragedy following him and uh this kind of like uh recovery over and over i mean he's making this movie at the age of uh 86 or something so i don't know there's something like i feel like talking about this directly in relation to his own crime his own case uh there's something that like doesn't work for me there um the the dreyfus case is 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 like a thing that he has sort of a long-standing interest Mm -hmm. in and it makes perfect sense like the anti-semitism and like the uh uh, accusation so Mm -hmm. i i i don't know if if it's that like a, of a one-to-one kind of relation. So then the question should be asked, why is this film being made now? Like beyond his personal biography, one, one clear moment that we're in is this persecutorial sort of spirit mm-hmm. that has taken over like liberal civil society discourse. And that's definitely a part of the film. And the journalists in the film actually play this liberatory role, holding up this kind of mirror um, to the journalists in the in the Dreyfus affair, the ones that say, in fact, like we're taking society under our reign. We know what truth is, and we're speaking the truth in the newspapers. Anyway, it, it strikes me as especially the the opposite of what the world that we live in now, which is like the newspapers just kind of go with the persecutorial spirit. But most of the press is is against Dreyfus. I mean, I think that the movie really is about like the the kind of uh, nobility, the or, or the the sort of um, courage, uh, the virtue mm-hmm. of, of, of the courage behind like you know pursuing an unpopular cause. Like yeah. and and like the, the this this character is is not at the at the beginning. He's not like a like a crusader for for the Jews or something like that at the beginning. He's he's he he openly admits his anti-Semitism, uh, mm-hmm. but but he gains virtue the more invested in in what he is doing. Like he's imprisoned and stuff, and like he's not shaken by that, right? Uh, there's a line that I really liked in the movie where somebody is they're they're accusing him of being uh, part of this like Jewish conspiracy, and he says that. Uh, that actually what I'm being accused is that I don't try to defend my honor with blind obedience. I mean, that's not the words he uses, that honor doesn't defend itself with blind obedience. Yeah, I would, I would agree that he, as he, as a protagonist um, throughout the film, he, he gains strength in character. Like he, he ends up kind of right. falling deeper in love with the, with the love interest. Um, mm-hmm. That's true. And it kind of reminded me of a Clint Eastwood film, the way in which the lead character is often um, has prejudices. Picard, his moral compass doesn't come from the state and it doesn't come from the right the military. 
at, nor does it come from the liberal press because he doesn't sort of identify with these people until they can serve the role of helping him in his campaign. It comes from some higher place, some duty to to the truth duty. That, that he taps into. A bourgeois achievement that are like upholding the letter of the law uh, against corruption. For him, it's it's like uh, the accu- the false accusations against Dreyfus are actually the the crime. Like he's yeah. he's he's acting on his duty as an officer, um, you know, and he you know he's there to to fulfill a duty for the people. For the people, right? To civil society, he's like playing out his duty as a civil servant. As opposed to acting on behalf of a military officer, right? So okay, so why why is this being made now? So is this just nostalgia for a moment in which this kind of civil duty to the people and truth as a kind of compass for what to do is felt? I do have this quote from from Palatsky talking about Me Too, but maybe like as we discussed earlier, it's too much of a heavy-handed attempt at comparison or something I don't, there is some, there is something about this film being made now that um mm-hmm. what was the quote it's from an interview that he did um i think that there is this kind of mass hysteria that occurs when occurs in society from time to time sometimes it's very dramatic like the french revolution or saint bartholomew's day massacre in france or sometimes it's less bloody like 1968 in poland or mccarthyism in the u.s everyone is trying to back this movement mainly out of fear i think it's total hypocrisy yeah, it's, it's a movie about standing against witch hunts in general. And that the thing with the Dreyfus mm-hmm. affair is that it, it really connects the the kind of um, like it's 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 not a crazy Nazi movement. It's like the French Third Republic and high society, like sort of liberal society. And even the socialists like Jean Jaurès was like against Dreyfus, you know, like Jean Jaurès was not against Dreyfus. Jaurès was um, he stood by by Dreyfus and defended him against apparently a lot of the socialists at the time were like you know this is just a bourgeois like squabble like the bourgeoisie is fighting against like the other bourgeoisie we don't have we don't have anything to say about this and Jaurès was like uh no actually like the persecution of an innocent man um is bad for the the possibility for socialism it was the syndicalists who who had that view that Pam, it was the, good, the followers of Gouda who had that view. And apparently it had an effect. It has, it plays a role in like the early split of the socialist movement because the Dreyfus affair was like extremely divisive in France and it cut across the socialists as well. It meant potentially like a overturning of the government. There is uh, a witch hunt, polite society witch hunt uh, uh, is mm-hmm. is intimately connected to the history of anti-semitism in europe that's really the sort of polanski kind of uh sensibility is it's not about uh, about defending his his right to uh sleep with young women or something he he is about like the experience of persecution and that 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 mm-hmm. there is something intimately connected between like these sort of moralistic uh witch hunts and the phenomenon of anti-Semitism itself, which led to the Holocaust, which is the Roman Polanski origin story. Like, he was a child in the Holocaust. Like, this is the source of all his stuff, right? Like, for him, like, the movies, watching movies during that time 
uh, the the few that he got a chance to like see at that time were was uh, escape. It was like that was what freedom was. This 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 thing that he's doing here is not so much about his own case, but about the phenomenon of witch hunt in general and the kind of like moral fortitude that's necessary to not go with it. Uh, and I think there's like a, a particular sort of European Jew kind of uh, uh, aspect. Is it better? It's better than a lot of films out today. Yeah, I thought it was a good film. Uh, it's a good historical drama. But I think something to bear in mind is that Polanski is part of the new wave of, of directors and like auteur directors who came out of the, the 60s, mid 20th century. And I feel like they're the last generation to really learn how to make a film. The, this like 60s generation, this new wave, was kind of rebelling against this inherited tradition of the avant-garde and its liberal Byzantine form, but also in the Soviet realist kind of rigidified form as well. And they tried to, um, you know, approach film in a new way. And I think that that kind of being able to rebel against that tradition uh, at least gave them some kind of like content uh, to work with or some kind of like they were working with ideology and like they're working with society um, in mind as they're making work. They're trying to make work that's addressing the, the questions of history and human freedom that, that give make them available as an aesthetic experience. There hasn't really been a kind of a passing of the torch, but that's not just because um, of like financial interest or marketing, but I think it really has to do with what Clement Greenberg talks about in, in the, the decline of Cubism, which is that when, when history is regressing, how can art really be expected to hold an advanced position in relationship to it? Um, it can't. I want to go back to what you said in terms of the auteur tradition. There's this accumulated experience of Polanski as a sort of persecuted subject that has a history beyond this case that he's in that um, is connected to a profound defeat of the 20th century. And he's taking that personal experience and then mediating it and translating it into the filmic form, making sense of his own experience in the world through film, making meaning out of his own, out of his own history through the film, which I guess is the task of an author. Right, he's good. He's he's a good filmmaker. That's why people watch his movies, right? Like, and he comes from um, a, a particular moment when um, the post-war youth were overthrowing or, or trying to uh, critique or, or rebelling against the kind of established mm -hmm. forms of uh, the, the the culture industry, the dominant forms of the culture industry of, say, the 30s, 40s, 50s. Hollywood. Uh, and it was happening both on the in the Eastern and the Western block. It was just happening, you know, more with a lot more funding in the <laughs> in the in the West. Uh, but, you know, that's that's where he comes from. And um, he struggled with censorship from the from the very beginning. And he really like there really was this kind of like uh, uh, miraculous moment for him, like the sort of uh, 1968 moment right before Sharon Tate got killed by by the Manson family because he had just made his most successful film uh, uh, up to up to then uh, Rosemary's Baby. 
and uh, it was massively successful and there was like uh it, it was when like all the hippies were hanging out in los angeles and you know you see a, a sort of like a picture of that time in in the tarantino movie in um, once upon a time what's it called once upon a time in hollywood where it, you know it looks like a kind of uh they had like overthrown all traditions or something you know he's in 68 and that collapses on him right when he is at the height of his success and has found this like uh, uh, sort of like promise of the counterculture uh, that goes against all this like sort of previous, uh, you know, Polish censorship that he was facing. And of course, his like experience in the war and all this stuff. There is a kind of betrayal of his own sort of a moment of success that he then has to deal with in, in again in a position of fleeing from from the law or from the establishment or, or whatever, you know? You know, unlike somebody like, I don't know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola or something, or, or George Lucas, he does not become part of the new Hollywood, you know? He sort of stays, like, for him, Hollywood is like the Eastern Bloc, <laughs> kind of, you know? Like, he feels persecuted and censored in that world. Mm -hmm. He has to, like, stay in New Wave for the rest of his career in a way that, say, Martin Scorsese can become the new uh, sort of established director in Hollywood. You know, and, and up to this point, he's still in that situation, you know, like sort of fleeing the establishment uh, while being canonical. And taking refuge in, in France, in a post-Dreyfus France. Because the, the French are totally okay with sleeping with 15-year-olds. So that's, that's really why... <laughs> On that note, um, <laughs> I think that's all the time we have uh, to talk about Polanski. But um, thank you guys for joining us. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come back with another segment. Or if you'd like to suggest to us any other cancelled artists to discuss. Talk soon. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. interview with Jack Conrad left me a little bit confused. Is it Kortsky or Kautsky? If you know the correct pronunciation, please send us a message on social media where Shitplatypus says on Instagram and Platypus says on Twitter. So, up next is my interview with Jack Conrad from the Communist Party of Great Britain. We'll include a link to the CPGB's website and their online newspaper in the description, so check it out. Hope you enjoy. Jack, if you could introduce yourself for our listeners who might not be familiar with the the CBGB, and if you could also let our listeners know how and when you became politicised. Well, as you say, my name's Jack Conrad. I'm chair of the uh, Provisional Central Committee, and I 
first became politically active way back. Um, I think I joined the um, the Young Communist League. I think I was about 13, which would be 1969 sometime or rather. Mm-hmm. In 1969 or the late 60s, what was it that drew you to, um, to the party? Was there a defining moment or was it like a slow burn or who was influential for you in this time? It's very hard to describe. I think that... Um, I was something of a natural rebel. Why I was attracted to official communism, well, um, I suspect it was because it seemed like a realistic project. This was obviously during the course of um, Vietnam. In all honesty, when I look back at it, although I can sort of, you know, blush with um, shame now, actually, compared with today's left, the sort of project of official communism had uh, real traction, i.e., national liberation movements in what is now called the third world or what was called the third world the labor movement in the west and the growth economically of the soviet union and the so-called socialist countries that you know it obviously wasn't a realistic project but if you look at it from the point of view of the 1960s or 1950s you could see why here's a way to overcome capitalism you know this will open up the future Uh, for humanity so yeah so it's a very different political landscape to today yeah totally Okay, so we organised this this chat. Um, we wanted to talk about Karl Kautsky. Plaspis recently held a panel entitled Kautsky in the 21st Century, and we'll, we'll include a link to that in the description as well. And I know that the Communist Party of Great Britain have a little bit of a history with Karl Kautsky as well, so I, I wanted to catch up with you. And also following, um, so recently you held the your annual Communist University over the summer, and I know throughout some of the, of the various presentations given by members of your organisation, Kautsky came up a lot I think if I'm remembering well at least in the ones that I watched I'm sure I'm sure he has um, on numerous occasions that's correct yeah Mm -hmm. so so who who is Karl Kautsky and how has he been of significant interest for your organization well, famously, he was the so-called Pope of Marxism. So after um, Engels's death, he was the most influential figure in the Socialist International. And certainly, you know, as we now discover, heavily influenced uh, the Bolsheviks and Lenin. And in many respects, the October Revolution and the strategy pursued by the Bolsheviks um, well, I, I think it was more than heavily influenced by uh, Kortsky. It was an attempt not only to build a German Social Democratic Party under conditions of illag- illegality under czarism, but also it was an attempt to go beyond a mere bourgeois revolution uh, that other Marxists at the time would have traditionally expected and and adhered to. So Kortsky and Lenin, at least from 1905-1906, were both arguing for a worker-peasant revolution as some sort of um, step towards socialism, uh, but also as the spark that would um, ignite the European revolution. So yeah, Kortsky was um, influential theoretically, um, not only in Germany, but also internationally, not least in Russia. Mm-hmm. So we, we also, we did a Plaspis summer reading group on Kautsky over the summer as well. Um, and a notable takeaway from, for me was towards the beginning of the syllabus to set him up historically, we read text from the anarchist Bakunin and also 
the socialist Ferdinand Lasalle um, mm-hmm. and to paint like a very broad picture with very broad brushstrokes. My takeaway was that Bakunin disavows Marx's key insight following the revolutions of 1848 with the need for a political party for the working class to overcome capitalism or overcome bourgeois um, social relations in crisis. And that LaSalle, on the other side of the coin, um, although recognising the need for a political party of the working class, ends up advocating the state as somehow able to achieve its kind of radical bourgeois potential of freedom, but under the conditions of capitalism. So he doesn't kind of realise that the state has uh, the state as, as a symptom of the crisis that Marx recognised. Also, just to add, I think something else about the political party uh, that I think needs stressing, and that is it will use elections. It will use political activity as well as economic activity. Uh, I think that's a very important question, because I think if you if you look back to Lenin's pamphlet, you know, three sources and three component parts of Marxism, you could, uh, I think, reasonably add a fourth, and that's British chartism as well as British political economy. Um, And obviously the Chartists, you know, were something that hit Frederick Engels particularly powerfully when he moved over to Britain. And of course the Chartists were agitating uh, for the vote. And I think that with the experience of the German party in particular, that became something of a model. So yeah, in terms of Bakunin, um, he certainly uh, rejected the idea of uh, this party participating in elections. And obviously that's something that the Russian Bolsheviks did, even though the electoral system was uh, a joke in terms of, you know, one person, one vote and uh, representation and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean as a joke? As in, it's very, very different to well, the modern um, state of electoral. Compared with what we now expect in the twenty first century, uh, and that is some sort of proportionate, roughly speaking, uh, relationship between number of votes you get and the number of uh, representatives you get in parliament. Uh, the Russian Duma was divided up into um, classes. So you had uh, the the landlord class, you know, getting a huge number of seats, not because of its numbers, uh, uh, the working class getting a tiny uh, number of seats and actually the peasants getting smaller and smaller numbers. So that's what I'm talking about, as well as it not having any power. It wasn't in any sense, you know, in no notion was it representative of the population as a whole. Nonetheless, the Bolsheviks made very good use of standing uh, for the Duma. Cool. Um, could you just clarify what you meant between um, you stress the political party and the economic activity? What you mean by the the economic activity? Well, one of the big struggles that uh, Lenin conducted in um, his younger days was against the so-called economists, and that's the idea that uh, the workers, through their economic struggles, uh, will arrive at political consciousness and um, eventually will therefore arrive at power. Now, Lenin never uh, denied the importance of economic struggles, but it was always emphasising there needs to be more. In other words, the workers not only need to engage in political struggle for themselves, especially in a country like Russia with a massive peasant majority, but they also need to have a politics for the other classes in society. So Lenin was emphasising the importance of the working class championing Uh, the rights and the interests um, of the peasantry. And certainly I think you can see behind me Lenin's uh, collected works. You'll find a huge amount more in the collected works on the peasant question 
than you will ever with Lenin on workplace conditions. Now, that's not to say that workplace conditions are irrelevant, but in terms of where his head was at, it was about educating and winning the working class movement precisely to take the interests of other classes, not least the peasant majority, seriously becoming a champion uh, of their rights. And again, we could list it off, you know, nationality rights, women's rights, championing the defense of Jews in the Russian Empire, and one could carry on down the list. So what I'm saying is economic uh, struggles, yes, 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 of course, but a lot more is needed if the working class is to become a class for itself and can actually act in that sense as a, a class that liberates humanity. It's got to become a universal uh, class, and that can only be done through politics. I, I can say for our listeners that Jack does have a lot of books behind him in his in his study. Um, so to bring it back to um, Kautsky, on our panel, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it, but if not, I'll forward it to you after the discussion anyways. Yeah, sure. But, um, so Ben Lewis yeah, opened... Yeah. Who's, who's involved with the Communist Party of Great Britain as well. Yeah. Um, he opened his panel remarks uh, well, with the, with the title, Kautsky, Revolutionary to Renegade. So historically, Kautsky's political party in his mass political party that, uh, in Germany, the, the SDP, um, made both the revolution, as you've touched upon, and also the counter-revolution. Um, so it made the revolution and then prosecuted it, with the SPD becoming the inherited party in Germany. It failed explicitly at its Marxist task. Um, I think I can nod along with that pretty, pretty easily, yeah. How and why would a true left need to address this fact? Well, I suppose, because if you look at um, where we're at now, one hopes that the left at some point will get its head together, will get its act together and make progress. And all I'd say is that the history of the 20th century has been a history of uh, not simply them, the bourgeoisie, the fascists, and one can list them off, the enemies of the working class doing down the working class. I think the major question uh, in front of us is the incorporation of uh, the parties and leaders of the working class into the bourgeois establishment, for want of a better word. And I think that um, if it can happen to Kortsky and uh, the German SDP, it can happen to any party. And therefore, you know, that lesson needs to be learned, not about the failings of a particular individual. You know, if only we had uh, better leaders or something like that. We need a culture that guards against that, that is aware of that possibility, um, you know, in, in terms of pulling people in that direction. In other words, bourgeois society is powerful and has been reinforced uh, by its ability to incorporate uh, the working class into it, and crucially, its leadership and its parties. In the in the in the moment of the um, capitulation of the party in in Germany, I guess Kautsky would would see it that he was upholding the revolution and that he was going to kind of hunker down while Wobble One um, kicked off, and that they would be in a stronger position later on. And so I guess it was a, like a tactical move on, on his part. 
to save the revolution. Yeah, I'm sure that's that's the justification inside his head. I I I, I don't uh, doubt that. Worth noting, isn't it, that um, when the um, SDP delegates uh, voted in the Reichstag for the war credits for the budget of uh, the Kaiser, that was unanimous. And okay, Kortsky was never a delegate to the Reichstag, but he had a sort of permanent seat on the fraction meetings. He was actually urging them to either vote against or to abstain. He was defeated, and yes, you're right, in that sense, from his point of view, what he was doing is preserving party unity. But then again, it's, it's, it's again, uh, we're talking in very neat terms, you know, about the SDP, the party, but of course that split, and uh, he was part of the split. So he was part of the independent Social Democratic Party, which also ironically included um, um, Edward Bernstein, who was also an opponent of the war, as well as Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. So yeah, uh, he, he um, in that sense, bit his tongue. Uh, he thought that the, the war would soon be over. What a cliche. You know, we've heard that so many times, haven't we? It wasn't the trade union leaders guaranteed social peace, but yeah, uh, the party ends up splitting. And in that sense, you know, maybe he could have saved himself, uh, but he didn't. So rather than going with the third international at the Halle uh, Congress, he became an opponent of um, the third international and eventually found his way back into uh, the official party, which you know presided over the uh, killing off of the revolution that you've mentioned, the murder of Liebknecht and uh, Luxembourg, and yeah, into a situation of managing capitalism, and we all know, you know, where that ended up. You know, 1933. If you know, you you can say again, if only they'd known um, that this is where it would end up, they would have acted differently. Uh, but then none of us actually know the future. We, we, you know, I'm sure we're all guided by the best of intentions, but that's what I'm really trying to say, uh, that even with the best of intentions, we actually need to, you know, take on board uh, the failures of the third international, the failures of the second international, because it isn't just bad people. Uh, something more profound there uh, that we need to account for. So how would you account for the resurgence of Kautsky as an important intellectual for the left today, um, and maybe also in the ten, last 10, 15 or so years? Maybe you could speak to the Communist Party of Great Britain's experience in the 2010s. Yeah, sure. Well, my first contact, I think, with the writings of Kautsky actually goes back a considerable way. And I can certainly remember buying and, and getting around to read uh, foundations of Christianity, and uh, this would this would be when I was quite young. I'm going, wow, this is a really interesting book. Also, again, I can't rem remember when, but uh, there were various publications coming out from various sources of uh, some of Kortsky's work. So, terrorism and communism came out. Uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat. These are the sort of polemics between Trotsky and Kortsky and Lenin and Kortsky, basically after the Russian Revolution. Um, so I read them and it really was an eye-opener because just reading, as I'd done, one side of the debate, that's a very sterile way of uh, reading. So yeah, uh, my my own um, how should I put it uh, knowledge and appreciation. Uh, I don't I can't say I was impressed by uh, terrorism and communism or the dictatorship of the proletariat. I thought they were dreadful books. Sorry, isn't uh, it, terrorism and communism a Trotsky book? 
It's both. Uh, I didn't know It's both, yeah. Okay. Um, So, yeah, Trotsky writes one, which is a dreadful book. Kortsky also writes one, and it's a dreadful book. Reading both sides of the debate uh, was a real eye-opener, both to Lenin's strengths, but also to his weakness, of course, and Trotsky's strengths and weaknesses. Um, But, yeah, I think, though, perhaps it's been the work of uh, Lars T. Lee. I can remember some of my comrades going on about this book. Oh, you know, Lars T. Lee and uh, what is to be done, rediscovered, and uh, was it Lenin rediscovered? And I thought, okay, you know, let's have a read of it. And, yeah, I read it over Christmas and went, wow, again, a, a great, a great piece of work. I think, though, in terms of reading, and, again, I don't read maybe enough of it or whatever but i have looked at the debates in jacobin uh, for example i've been both interested in those debates but profoundly disappointed interested precisely as you were saying there's an interest in Kortsky. you know what's this all about uh, but what i then find is that they all uh, and i don't other than lars i i think they all get Kortsky wrong uh, they're treating him as a sort of equivalent of bernstein or as the father of modern social democracy in the 20th century sense, where I would look back at him precisely as uh, the renegade of 1914, who with all his faults before 1914, has something to say to us uh, today. And uh, precisely uh, what you get through Lars's book, what's he called Lenin? Um, Aggressive unoriginality. Lenin is a very aggressive polemicist uh, but what he's saying uh, is basically Kortsky, middle ground, second international, common sense. We need a party. It needs to become mass. We need to win the majority. In Russia, that means we have to work underground to begin with, but we need to use every legal opportunity we can. The revolution cannot be isolated in Russia. It needs to spread to uh, Europe. All of this is uh, standard second international uh, stuff And if uh, you've got the Pope of Marxism, i.e. the most influential figure in the Second International after Engels's death, uh, if we can get an insight into what he was saying, uh, I think that's highly valuable. Unfortunately, as I said, uh, reading uh, Jacobin, they tend to, I think, uh, radically misread him. And so what you get is basically Kortsky, the advocate of uh, slow reforms, um, you know, bit by bit, evolutionary socialism well um, i yeah I, I, I this was a question for you so like yeah. on our on our panel Kautsky in the 21st century a panelist adam Sachs, um who's a contributor yeah, to jacobin magazine um yeah. so he quite shockingly said um Kautsky would be down with the squad so that's like aoc uh, yeah. and um um, and so it's clear that Kautsky is being used by some on the left today to just, justify democratic socialism or um, Toralism in the vein of Sanders and Corbyn, although this moment has kind of passed, um, or you have Biden. Um, what do you make of this attempt to paint Kautsky as a radical social democrat using <laughs> abusing his historical legacy well, to justify an attempt I, I, at neo-social I, I, democracy? I, yeah, sure. On one level, it's quite intriguing that they're laying hold of this I suppose nowadays in the 21st century, a rather obscure figure. But then we've seen it before, haven't we? You know, I can remember, you know, given my age, the sort of Gramsci moment being laid hold, laid hold of by the Eurocommunists. And when you read Gramsci himself, you go, 
he's no Euro communist. Whatever he was, he was no Euro communist. In the same way that if you look at uh, Kortsky, if you read his uh, uh, earlier stuff, uh, if you read The Class Struggle, I don't think that's got anything in common uh, with people, you know, saying that the place to work is in the Democrat Party, that um, through the Democrat Party you can make social progress, or for that matter, Corbyn will lead to working class power. No, I mean, what Kortsky uh, is advocating is a working class party equipped with a revolutionary Marxist program, <laughs> which uh, none of these comrades are advocating. And certainly our experience in Britain, I don't know, uh, again, enough about the United States, but certainly when we raise elements of the minimum program of German social democracy, they run a mile. You know, you, you take the question of replacing the standing army uh, with a popular militia, and in Britain, that's considered mad. And you just go, well, again, that's just common fare for all the parties, as far as I know, of the Socialist International. And it's worth knowing uh, that when our Labour Party, our staid Labour Party, was formed in 1900, its first candidates also stood on a programme to abolish the standing army. Now the left in Britain, which often considers itself very radical and, you know, right up there, shies away uh, from even talking about such uh, tasks. So, for example, when you had Black Lives Matter, you know, with people making their own placards of defund the police, but let alone abolish the police, it was noticeable in Britain that the left wanted to jump on board. It wanted to tail that movement, but it had to explain to its readers, but what we mean by abolishing the police, this is after the revolution. <laughs> How on earth are you going to have a revolution? Uh, guarded by British, the British police and the British army is beyond me. Uh, surely a revolution necessitates, uh, you know, combating the police, winning sections of the police over to the working class movement, splitting the army. If you don't do that, I think talk of revolution is a joke. And I think that's where the, the left is at. It, 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 you know, goes on demonstrations. What do we need? Revolution. When do we want it? Now. But it's got no programme to bring that about and don't, don't even want to discuss program uh, nowadays. So one of the strengths of Kortsky, of course, was the publication which Ben worked on, you know, the debates around the Earthort program, which became the model for um, social democracy in Europe. Kortsky was one of the principal architects of that program, the dividing of the program into a minimum and maximum program, but also overcoming the shortcomings of the earlier Gotha programme that, of course, Marx famously criticised in uh, 1875. Well, I, I would suspect uh, that the reason why opportunists um, today can use Karl Kortsky is that, one, there's been a certain resurgence, as you said, over the last 10 years or so in people talking about him and um, saying, well, this is a good book or that's an interesting uh, discovery. So it has that sort of um, air of novelty to it. It has that air of, uh, I'm a real intellectual. So yeah, um, I, as I said, I think that opportunists will use whatever weapon, whatever appears to have some credibility or uh, some sort of cachet at any time to cover their tracks. Uh, but I think that's what it is. Uh, the idea of uh, left-wing Democrats is hardly a new one in the same way that in Britain left-wing Labourites. It goes back to the origins of Labourism. The results are always the same, disappointment, 
And in that sense, the left uh, of the Democrat Party and the left of Labourism are constantly disappointed, but they're constantly renewed by the nature of that society itself. And I think that's the important thing, again, to understand. And I haven't got the, the, the formula for it, but we on the left, if the left is going to become a credible force again, we actually need to break precisely from tailism, uh, from illusions in the next, you know, man on a white horse that's going to come and save us. Jeremy Corbyn ain't going to do it. Bernie Sanders ain't going to do it. No, we need our own party. It needs to be democratic. It needs to have a culture of uh, rigorous debate, open debate, public debate, where disagreements aren't considered uh, the, pre- you know, the prelude to a split, but are considered normal and healthy in an organisation. But we've got a long way to go, that's all I can say, looking at uh, today's sorry excuse for a left. So no no Joe Biden on a, on a white horse? No. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Just to go back to something you said earlier, I was wondering how were Trotsky's and Lenin's weaknesses put into light um, via your reading of the um, Kautsky's earlier works? Well, I think that what you had uh, with both of them is uh, they go into the Russian Revolution and I think the expectation of um, virtually all Bolsheviks, as far as I would uh, assess it, is that, uh, okay, they're going to act as a spark for the European Revolution. Here you are, there's Europe at war, clearly there's mass discontent, you have the revolution in Russia, this sparks a revolution crucially in Germany, but France, Italy, who knows, uh, elsewhere... And yes, in that sense, uh, Russia goes from being the vanguard back to its rightful place of being, you know, how should you put it, um, relying on aid from more advanced countries. So if you look at what happens uh, after 1917, I think what you've got is an adaption by the Bolsheviks to their unexpected isolation and the political and unpleasant tasks that that necessitates. So in terms of the Bolsheviks, uh, they'd been committed to democracy in 1917. OK, I don't think the closing down of the Constituent Assembly was um, of huge importance, but that eventually also leads to the fixing of elections in the Soviets. It eventually leads to the dying of the Soviets. It leads to a situation of where they cannot satisfy the economic or political demands of the working class. They're having to send armed detachments into the countryside to take the grain off peasants. So peasants famously said, well, we love the Bolsheviks. They gave us land. We hate the communists because they take the grain. Well, all of these things were forced upon the Bolsheviks. Now, with Lenin... Uh, reading Lenin, I detect in part an adaption to that and a sort of, well, this is how it ought to be, but also in his cooler moments, a realism that they're in the shit, to use a phrase, and we don't want to glorify um, our situation with Trotsky, on the other hand. He's glorifying in the use of terror. He actually glories in it. We don't want democracy, that's bourgeois. You know, we we use terror against our opponents. Now, I don't object to using violence under certain circumstances. Uh, No one can who's a a working-class politician. But to glorify it is ridiculous. And again, to 
discount the centrality of democracy, both in terms of the struggle for it under capitalism, uh, let alone its full flowering, which is what should happen under socialism, shows something is profoundly going wrong. And what we have, I think, with the Third International is that norm gets taught to a generation after generation after generation on the left. And so the left doesn't really now understand the importance of democracy, both in their own organizations, but also in society. They pay lip service uh, to it. But in reality, I don't think they understand uh, the centrality of uh, a democracy. And I think that's something Lenin did understand up to 1917. And I'd say to the end of 1917, Marx understood it. I think Luxembourg understood it. Engels understood it. But I think with Korsky, the tragedy there is he uses uh, quote unquote democracy against the revolution. And it, it becomes his excuse to actually uh, do deals with um, people who sit in coalition governments with the capitalist class. That is clearly a break. So they're all, in that sense, confronting an unexpected turn in the 20th century. And uh, I don't think any of them come out with glory. I'm obviously more sympathetic. I say obviously, I don't know why it's more obvious. Maybe it's because I'm in the CPGB. The very name gives it away. But I'm more sympathetic, obviously, to Lenin and Trotsky because they were fighting for a revolution where Korsky was making an, an excuse of why you shouldn't be fighting for a revolution. So what are the CPGB focusing on today? Just to wrap well, up. Having, having mentioned uh, the Labour Party, um, you know, one of our uh, fields of struggle is the Labour Party, but uh, it's a field of struggle that we are trying to engage with in order to overcome Labourism. So our engagement is, in some respects, trying to re-equip comrades on the left of some sort of historic memory, you know, vis-a-vis -vis coalition governments and uh, illusions in parliamentarism. But what we're also saying, and I think this is the crucial question, is that the left needs to be equipped with a Marxist party. And there is no substitute for that. You know, the Democrat Party can't substitute for that. The trade unions can't substitute for that. And nor can the Labour Party substitute for that. There has to be whatever you want to call it, Communist Party, Marxist Party, Socialist Party, Social Democratic Party. But there has to be a party um, if we're going to see socialism, if we're going to um, have, you know, genuine social progress, yeah. Cool. Thank, thanks for joining us, Jack. My um, pleasure. Yeah, and thanks for coming. And I hope to, the to see you again in Communist University at some point in the not too distant future. COVID nineteen yeah. allowing. Yeah. Yeah. So COVID nineteen meant that it was on. It happened on Zoom. Um, yeah, exactly. We'll yeah. we'll include a link to that as well in the description, yeah, yeah. and you can access all of the all of the Zoom talks. And I guess next year it will will vaccine permitting maybe it will be yeah. in person as usual. Yep. Okay, Sophia. Thanks very much. Oh, thanks for thanks Absolutely. for speaking with me. Take bye care. bye. Our new intro track is by Plasmus member Thomas Falagi. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. 
Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of The Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. You know, um, like at one point when you were like, well, yeah, because he's good, right? Like, yeah, that's obviously the point, but it's really hard to make to people now because this category of good film, it like has to it be justified like morally yeah, or something. Yeah, it has to be justified morally, and it's really hard because like I don't that, hang out with those people. That that's like one bit that we hadn't really talked about is like, so when you asked that question, like, how would you assess a good film? And I kind of presented like I wouldn't know how to like how to assess a good film. But I know it's a good film. Um, you know, like yeah, you know it when you see it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. and I guess we have like an impoverished aesthetic education, but to the extent that I am capable of recognizing like good art, right? Like, we we can talk to each other and say it's good, but it's a really hard conversation to have with people who are actively. I don't know. There is a kind of anti-art bent among the liberals. But there, there's don't... a bit of a group think among them as well. Like, if you're in a, if you're in a group, if you're sat in a group of of liberals, that there's a bit of like looking at each other in terms of like, mm, does it like morally surpass? Is it okay on the moral compass? And then, are you down with that? Are you down with that? Like, I don't yeah. know. You I mean, you're saying you don't hang out with these people, Marco, but it's crazy how, like, it's, they're just everywhere. They're just walking around with opinions. In, in cities. And jobs. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, they're, like, in charge of things. That's the, like, you said, I think you said on Facebook, like, like, so how, like, where did all these people come from who are, like, responsible for things now? Like, yeah. the New York mm -hmm. Times? And it's, like, yeah. true. It's true. <laughs> they come from, from, from the universities. That's yeah, the like, they're problem. earning their six figures and are canceling John Rathman. Yeah, anyway. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye.